Hello and welcome to episode two of the Last of the Moon podcast. I'm Bryce McCracken. I'm Brett Redshaw. I'm Wyatt Van Dyke. And today we will be talking about the brand new film, Megan. Megan is a film about a doll who is not a doll but a robot and she is a killer. It is almost Pearl if it wasn't set on a farm and it was a lot more AI focused. The movie follows a put together um, quickly, informally, a um, impromptu family that has to come together based on extenuating circumstances. So we follow the trials of a family that is just trying to figure it out with the plot device of a four foot tall monster doll that is also on a murderous rampage. So this is of course a Blumhouse film. Uh, I don't know how much you guys know about Blumhouse, but they produce the vast majority of just generic horror movies. Every once in a while they put out a good one. And that kind of leads me to, did we think that this was a good movie? Where, what, what were our thoughts going into, into this viewing experience? I mean, I was expecting a horror movie that sort of conforms to a type of horror movie we've seen a lot of, which is Killer Doll. Uh, it certainly takes like a, a modern twist on the concept. Uh, I was not expected to be blown away by the depth and emotion uh, in the film, and certainly wasn't, but uh, I expected an entertaining time, and it was that. Yeah, I didn't catch any of the trailers for this movie. Generally speaking, I try to not watch trailers so I can avoid it, and thankfully I got to avoid it this time. The only thing that I knew about the movie going in was what Bryce had told me, which was doll that kills people. And then I just thought about Chucky, so modern Chucky, and that's more or less what we got, um, except debatably worse, <laughs> which is obviously up for debate, but we'll obviously get into that part. And what, what Brett said, I had told him about this film, in that it's about a killer doll. That's about all that I knew. I, I also did not watch any trailers. Uh, I knew that Allison Williams was in it. Uh, first thing I saw her in was Get Out, and I really liked her in that. So to some extent, I was excited. I had been hearing a lot of positive talk about this. I saw that it had a really high Rotten Tomatoes score. And of course, that doesn't really mean anything. I'm not going to rant about Rotten Tomatoes here, but I was at least optimistic, uh, hopefully optimistic. And I think just based on the, the very brief conversations that we've had, I actually think I liked this movie more than both of these guys, it certainly wasn't anything great, but I had a pretty good time, and it seemed like the we we saw the movie with a decent amount of people, and it seemed like the the people in the theater were having a good time. I thought it was fun. I thought it was really funny. Uh, it wasn't anything groundbreaking by any means, but I thought it was a good time. What did what what were your thoughts leaving the movie, guys? That's actually pretty similar to what I had to say about it. Was um... This certainly isn't kind any kind of groundbreaking highbrow art, you know. Um, and thankfully, I didn't have that expectation going into it. So I didn't walk out of the movie with any kind of, oh, I feel destroyed that I spent $10 on this kind of foiled expectations. Uh, I had a really good time. I, I think that if I knew that it was this kind of movie anyway, I would have said, okay, yeah, let's have a good night with the boys and go hang out and watch this movie anyway, because it's that type of film. With the McDonald's that we snuck into the theater. 
Well, some of us. I'm not an animal. Uh, Wyatt, <laughs> Wyatt, you you sort of spoiled your your thoughts as we were getting in the car, but you didn't seem to like it very much. I mean, I didn't like it. It's not my type of movie. Uh, but as Brett was saying, I mean, it was ten dollars to go see this. Eight fifty for me. Shout out student discounts. Uh, but would I consider it a waste of my money? Absolutely not. The purpose of the movies is to enjoy time spent and the time spent with the people you go with. Uh, and it was an hour and a half of time that I enjoyed. It's a movie I won't think about after we record this podcast for quite literally the rest of my life. (laughs) Until it makes my top list at the end of the year. Absolutely. Um, I also think it's worth noting that uh, James Wan produced this movie and also produced Annabelle, which means he's been in on two different movies about killer dolls. And I don't feel like, like that's two, that's one too many movie related to killer dolls to make and think it's an original idea, but like it's a new take on it. So. Yeah, I, th- I thought that it was a pretty creative take. Uh, there were some standout moments for sure. There were some some real highlights that were really funny. There were some real highlights that I actually thought were pretty impressive feats of acting, and we'll talk about that when we get into spoiler content. Yeah, um, I had a, I had a similar feeling. Um, I had a takeaway that was similar to Wyatt's in that I don't think that I'm going to be thinking about this movie a lot, but um, I wouldn't want that to detract from you know, the movie going experience, because I would suggest this to a lot of people. I would say you should go watch this movie anyway. It's fun. I also think it's worth noting we're recording this on the 8th of January. The The month of January has kind of taken a moniker in the film community, and that is Dumpuary. And it's <laughs> sort of this vicious cycle where not a lot of people go to the movies in January, so studios don't release their big... Uh, ticket items in this month and because there are no good movies coming out in January nobody goes to the movies so it's this it's this vicious cycle and it results in the vast majority of the content that comes out film-wise in January is tough realistically had this come out at some point in the summer when there are a lot of good movies coming out we probably would not have even seen this movie but it will likely be one of, if not the biggest movies that comes out this month, and so we wanted to, we wanted to see it. And definitively, definitively, my favorite movie of twenty twenty three. That's a, that's that a great seen. point. And also, I was going to talk about this uh, later, but you kind of brought up uh, its relative success due to when it was released. I don't know if you guys saw this. Over thirty million dollars box office already opening weekend, which is pretty shocking to me. Um, but I, I think you're totally right. Uh, it wasn't really going to be competing with anything other than Babylon. And I think the people who care about the kind of movie that Babylon is probably have seen it already. I e yes. the three of us making a podcast. And I think it's worth noting. I touched on briefly what Blumhouse does very well. Uh, they get people in the seats. Brett said that this apparently grossed 30 million in the domestic box office over the weekend. I'm seeing that the budget for this movie was $12 million. And that's a that's a pretty big staple of every Blumhouse movie, tiny budgets and a lot of box office success. So I, I would imagine these like middle tier Blumhouse production movies are not going anywhere. And I really think a lot of people do like them. And so if you've liked Blumhouse movies in the past, if you like horror movies, I really do think that it's Worth seeing. It's a fun time. If you're looking for something to do this weekend or even just a random night, feel free. Go see it. it. It's a good time. All right. We're going to go ahead and get into some spoiler talk. So 
If you do not want to be spoiled for the film Megan, please go out, see it, come back, and join in our discussion. As you should. As you should. As you should. Ultimately, that's the goal of this podcast. We just want to have discussions about movies. And if you can participate in that, by all means, do it. Get in the seats. Go see it on a silver screen. Get in the seats. That was meant to be done. Give movies money. Go to the Manor in Squirrel Hill, the greatest movie theater of all time. (laughs) For our Pittsburgh audience, Manor's a great theater. If you're interested in watching Megan for yourself so that you don't get spoiled by our upcoming discussion, it's playing in pretty much every movie theater right now. Feel free to go ahead and check it out. Hello, hello, hello. This is Editor Bryce just chiming in to say, I'm about to tell you that the way this specific episode plays out will be the standard way that we format future episodes. But about halfway through recording this episode, I realized that it doesn't allow for nearly as much discussion as I'd like. We're still very much playing around with how this show will work going forward. I just wanted to give you a fair warning for what I'm about to say. And I thank you for your patience as we figure this thing out. Now, back to the show. So the way that this is going to work and the plan for future episodes of this podcast, I'm just going to go through a plot summary and hopefully that sparks some good discussion. So Megan opens with a fun little ad for these goofy little dolls called Perpetual Pets. And this is framed like an actual ad. Uh, It almost, I would have thought that it was a legitimate ad probably had it not played after the Blumhouse credit. Uh, you guys think that that was effective as a way to open the movie? It was a good idea. I mean, I was thoroughly thrown off for the first few seconds before like the content of the ad was uh, displayed, and I realized it was a little bit outrageous, and uh, there was like a dog being put down within the first 10 seconds of it. Uh, I thought it was a great way to capture attention early on um, and served an effective purpose. Yeah, the absurdity... Or satire of it was like, hey, kid, did your dog die? Oh, man, that sucks. Give money to this toy company, which is a toy company that is a central part of the movie. Um, it was really funny. It was incredibly well done. The uh, The shooting of it was really good. I would not be shocked if um, the, the people who worked on that specific part of the movie have history in doing ads, like the real ads similar to that one, because it was... It was done exceptionally well. I thought that it was really good. Also, the absurdity of it should have given me more of a hint as to what kind of movie this actually was going to be. But I was like, that's weird, and then just kind of forgot about it. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I I realized pretty quickly into this ad that this was meant to be satirical, and I think that opening with this ad gave a good lens to look at the rest of the movie through. Like, like I said earlier... I didn't really know what to expect going into this, and so by opening the film in this way, I was able to realize, okay, this it's not taking itself super seriously. Let's just have a good time. So it cuts directly from this ad for perpetual pets to the backseat of a car, and we see a perpetual pet sitting next to our protagonist of the film, Katie. Uh, Katie is nine years old, and she is in the car with her parents, and they are driving through the snow, We learn later that they're on their way to a skiing trip, but the weather looks pretty bad. Uh, I I, I like what this scene does. Uh, The opening like 10 minutes of this movie I really liked. Uh, I think this scene did a really good job of establishing sort of the vibe of how kids are really attached to tech. This perpetual pet toy connects with the iPad and the parents are sort of bickering about how 
how ridiculous it is that kids these days play with toys, but it's on their iPad, and it didn't it didn't feel quite as on the nose as that might sound just based on the description. Uh, I thought it was pretty funny. Yeah, I think an overall running theme of the movie is phone bad. The war on the iPad, kid. If the movie is trying to say anything at all, it's probably one or two things, and one of them is phone bad, which a year or two ago, I probably would have been really annoyed at, whereas now, I don't feel that annoyed at it after I set up screen time on my phone, and then I see how much time I'm on TikTok and really disappointed in myself, whereas now I'm uh, much more on the maybe even conservative parent side that actually is the the phone bad take. Um, the perpetual pet is like a Furby ripoff, except it's got a giant camera <laughs> in the front of it that's <laughs> to the point of absurdity. It's so obvious that there's a giant camera watching your child inside the Furby, and uh, I wanted to shoot it with a gun. <laughs> and it poops. <laughs> it poops. That thing pooping, It dude. was very annoying, as it was supposed to be. So the, the last thing that this scene sets up, we, we learn that Katie got this doll from her Aunt Jenna, or Gemma, Aunt Gemma, who works at Funky, and that is the company that produces these toys. Um, and then the inclement weather gets worse and worse. They come to a stop. And they're hit by a car. This is a pretty cliche way to open a horror movie. I can count at least eight or nine movies that I've seen in the last decade or so that open with a car crash in one way or another. Uh, Even Get Out, which features Allison Williams, the same actress from this movie, starts with a car crash. Uh, It's obviously done differently, but I felt like this was pretty effective in this movie. Um, And in general, I think it's a pretty effective trope for horror movies. It starts off the movie with a feeling of tension, and I thought that it was done pretty well here. The car crash as a plot device, I agree, was pretty good. The effect of the car getting hit was notably bad. Very, very goofy looking. <laughs> I, uh, I, especially as somebody still looking at this movie with the lens of this is a serious genre horror movie, I couldn't believe how bad the car crash looked, and I almost laughed. Um, they were very clearly they were very clearly on a green screen stage, and these lights just come out of nowhere, and then there's a big boom, and then it cuts. But also, and I still don't know what to make of this, that the effect of the car crashing was bad in a movie that had, and I was going to talk about this later, but really good practical effects. Yes. The movie has really good and good special effects. effects, and somehow they just. Started off on a really sour note. Yeah, they just didn't <laughs> seem to try very hard with, with the car crash. But for the sake of the movie and the plot, I thought that it was pretty well done. Agreed. So after the car crash, we meet Gemma. This is the aunt that gave Katie the perpetual pet doll. And there's a, a brief montage here as we learn that Katie's parents have unfortunately passed. And Gemma, this aunt is now assigned as Katie's legal guardian. So the next few scenes, we follow Katie as she brings Gemma home, and we learn pretty quickly that Gemma is not set up well to be a caregiver of a child. Gemma seems like she's quite literally never interacted with a child before, uh, and that's evident almost immediately. Uh, The movie centers her focus on her work very quickly, and it's shown that even in the midst of great family trauma, 
she cannot be bothered to focus on anything outside of her job. She's even very mean to their neighbor, who seems like a pretty harmless and kind person. Uh, there's a very obnoxious jump scare in this scene where they pull up to the driveway where this neighbor's dog jumps at the window. And Gemma just goes off on the neighbor, this sweet elderly woman, about how she needs to keep her damn dog on her side of the fence, but there's a big hole in the fence that Gemma's supposed to take care of, and she's just too lazy, apparently, to do it herself. And she's very mean to this old woman, who seems pretty nice. She yells at her about her chemicals that she's spraying on her plants, and it just establishes Gemma pretty early on as not super social and definitely not well-equipped to deal with a child. Yeah, the dog runs in Gemma's general direction, and she's like, watch your dog, or I'm gonna kill it. Yeah, she literally <laughs> threatens to murder this dog. <laughs> Which, I, I don't I don't really think that the movie explores that side of Gemma a whole lot. It's not really concerned with that. I'm okay with that. It was just a bit out of place, I felt. I don't know if you guys felt similarly. I think it was a little bit over the top. Like, they could have showcased, she's a little cold and a little confused with how to handle the situation without being so blunt. Yes. But I mean, also dependent on the type of audience that this movie is meant for, sometimes a lack of nuance is necessary. Agreed. Yeah, she she literally says, if you don't put down that dog, I will, which <laughs> does come into play later. It is just really strange to me because, and this is something that happens a lot in the movie, is I think that we as the audience are supposed to feel ep empathetic towards Gemma, and then we're given no reason at all to, i.e. potential dog murderer. <laughs> so the dog murder line, I actually think is one thing that I want to point out that I think this movie did pretty well, and that's the idea of Chekhov's gun. If you're not familiar with that, it's a literary principle that every single thing in a movie should be there for a purpose, and it applies to books and any other kind of narrative structure as well. But the idea is, if you show a gun in a movie, you have to use the gun later in the movie. And I actually felt like it did that pretty well throughout. I'll, I'll highlight a few more times that uh, it shows something and then it comes up later in a pretty creative way. So this scene, we see Gemma attempting to acclimate to life with a child and... I, I was thinking this whole time, this would actually make a pretty good drama on its own. It's that, like, that is a movie. That's Madag or Madagascar. Madagascar. <laughs> <laughs> That's Manchester by the Sea. Yes. Very similar movie. Much darker. Very concept. similar in plot. Yeah. Not, not in similar tone at all. In, in energy, no. My notes say, I wish there were more penguins in this movie, but that would be Madagascar. There should always be more penguins in any movie. Penguins make the world go round. All right, so we cut to Gemma's job at Funky, where we meet her co-workers, and they act as the vast majority of the cast for this movie. So we meet Tess and Cole, who work pretty closely with Gemma. They appear to help her with her engineering at this company. We meet Gemma's boss, David, who's this very capitalistic, greedy, very basic CEO type of man. And we meet his executive assistant, Kurt, who he clearly does not treat very well. Uh, this scene establishes pretty quickly that Gemma is supposed to be working on a cheaper version of the perpetual pet because they now have competitors, but it's very clear that her passion is for AI and robotics. Uh, there's a fun little contrast here 
the movie at least tries to set up that Gemma's a little bit too smart to be working at a toy company. And they show this by showing her big project, the name of this movie, Megan, which stands for Model 3 Generative Android, which is a little bit absurd. And I kind of like it. I think it's kind of funny. I have in my notes just women in STEM. Yes. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> she is uh, very smart and really good at her job. And you know what? Damn it. I can appreciate that. So Gemma and her coworkers unbox a f- silicone face and they throw it on this android and they call it Megan. And it shows that this is a pretty advanced AI. They try to walk it through some facial features and some voice recognition. And it's not going super well. And David, the boss, walks in, and he's clearly very upset by this. They try to show him the potential of this product and how it could actually make him a lot more money than these toys that he's trying to work on. Uh, But it's a failure. Megan craps out, and David gets very upset and tells Gemma she has one week to get the prototype for the cheaper version of the Perpetual Pet on his desk. Can I, can I stop you real mm-hmm. quick here? Because I wanted to talk about just not only did the project fail in this impromptu test, uh, how badly it failed. Uh, the movie shows that this project is very, very much unready at this point. And it doesn't just kind of flub out and not really work. Um, the one assistant, Cole... He's like, oops, I forgot to to install the doohickey. And then its head fucking explodes, <laughs> which is is so funny and also just completely absurd. But it's noteworthy that, um, like I said, it, it fails so incredibly badly for a point that I think that we're going to get to later. But it, it's really funny. That's what this movie does best. Like, its best moments are when it's at its most absurd. So... I mean, it's over the top, and that's a strong theme throughout, but it sets up clear themes and is entertaining when it happens. So after this scene, we're back at Gemma's house, and we see a lot of Gemma-Katie interaction not going super well. Gemma has collectible toys that are still in their boxes, and Katie doesn't really understand how these toys are not meant to be played with, and a therapist comes to see how Gemma and Katie interact. She's apparently sent by social services, supposedly. Um, and this scene was really just baffling to me. She, she wants to see how the two of them interact, but I, I don't really think that this is how that would work. She doesn't really seem to care at all about Katie. She's kind of just, go ahead and do your thing. I'm just going to watch and see what happens. And my biggest problem with this scene is she, the therapist seems very upset that Gemma is not good at being a parent. Like, she's, she seems to have complete lack of empathy for the situation that Gemma's in. Like, Gemma just lost her sister. Gemma's not a parent, and she's doing her best. I think it's clear she's trying, and the idea that the therapist would just be like, you're bad at this. I'm going to take the kid away. It, it feels a little bit over the top, and maybe not how this actually works. I'm, of course, not a therapist, but... I don't know if you guys felt similarly. So the therapist has Katie roll a a ball back and forth uh, between herself and Gemma. Uh, It's over the top, but it's done to demonstrate the the difference between the two of them. Uh, It's a collectible toy that's not meant to be rolled, and Gemma takes issue with that quickly. And 
has to interject like two or three times trying to be clear that it has a purpose and it needs to be used for its intended purpose, uh, a direct call to her analytical mind and her intelligence. The therapist sees it as like a lack of emotion uh, and a lack of ability to parent. And so this rolling of a ball that feels deeply unnatural is done to further solidify the divide between the two of them. And I really didn't think it was super effective. This whole scene just felt very off to me. Um, It actually left me thinking that Katie, the child, was a very poorly written character. It felt like they wrote her as a four or five year old, you know, the type of child that would be rolling a ball back and forth for fun, maybe even younger than that. But they were trying to tell me that she was nine. That issue eventually went away. Later, I felt like she was a pretty well-written character, actually. Um, and we can talk more about that. But this this whole scene was just strange. I'm not sure how this real-world social situation would have gone down. I would have taken this kid away because Gemma was so damn lame. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not really convinced that... Uh, well, she looks like somebody who should be really, really cool, and then she's not at all. Um, she's way too attractive to be as nerdy and lame as she is. Hey, man, even hot people can be really annoying and lame. Look at me. I'm looking. <laughs> so is everybody else, and they're thinking how stupid I am. So we get some more scenes after the therapy scene of the two of them trying to connect. We get a scene where Gemma's working late one night in her garage, which eventually will become a pretty important setting. And she's got a lot of stuff in here. It's clear she's a very intelligent, hardworking individual that just likes to tinker with stuff. And Katie wakes up. It's late at night. She comes in and they're talking. And we meet my personal favorite character, in the whole movie, our boy Bruce. 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 Does one of you want to explain who Bruce is? So Bruce is this giant robot that Gemma has built uh, as a college project. Uh, it kind of sits in the garage. It's massive. It's control- like controlled by this uh, set of gloves that you put them on and it mimics your actions. It's real like man-made horrors beyond my comprehension type deal. Seems like the type of video that you'd see where they're like, in a military manufacturing plant and you see it and you're like god that's horrifying but it's just this woman in her garage and i love the idea that she apparently designed this breakthrough technology in college and just has it sitting in her garage it's basically pacific rim but a lot smaller yes um and of course bruce will if you've seen the movie come into play later so remember bruce he's very important he's important in my heart I will say that. Mostly in our hearts is where he is important. But in at the end of this scene, Katie implies that this is basically the best toy ever. Do you guys remember exactly what she says there? She said something to the effect of, if I had a toy like this, I would never need another toy ever again. Something like that. And then Gemma's like, whoa, brain blast. Light bulb. And ben so that, that kicks off uh, Gemma basically saying... F my one-week deadline, allow me to stay in my garage for three days straight and just finish Megan. It it all happened very fast, but we get a, a quick montage. And at the end of this montage, Megan is just done. Did, did you guys like the character design for Megan? Uh, Megan was, like, uniquely haunting. Um, it's, it's a frightening display. Uh, it mixes looking enough like a person 
with being a little bit too robotic in a in a well done way. I think Megan as a character, both in like voice acting and design, is the highlight of the movie for me. Um, voiced by Jenna Davis. Voiced by Jenna Davis, and then the physical movements was done by. One second. As Wyatt finds that, uh, about that, I actually was thinking a lot throughout this movie. I really like this voice performance by this child. She's not really been in anything else, but granted, she's not asked to do a whole lot. She's even expected to deliver her lines in a pretty monotone way, and they throw some cool voice effects on there. But there were a few moments in particular near the end of the film that I actually was thinking, hey, this this girl's doing something unique. Cycling back around to my point about uh, like the physical acting of Megan, uh, it's done by Amy Donald. Um, she does a great performance. A lot of her stunts are done, like, actually, she does them practically. Uh, and that includes bear crawling through the forest. Uh, <laughs> a scene that was absolutely hilarious. Uh, a dance scene that has done the rounds on TikTok. Um, so she does a great job. I think her performance throughout the movie is worth noting. I mean, being that she's not a face you see or a voice you hear, she doesn't get... Uh, as much like presence, but I think her impacts are still very important to the movie, and I think she did a great job, and it's worth shouting out. She does a good job of cycling between just sort of ominously sitting in a corner or standing in the distance like a toy might, and also just being absolutely maniacal and terrifying in, at a few points. So we get a lot of Megan and Katie bonding. Uh, it's set up very quickly. Megan is freaking awesome. She can teach, she can caretake, and Katie and Megan connect very quickly. It's clear that Katie really is just happy to have a friend because Gemma is not doing a great job as her caretaker. Actually, there were a number of mo montages in this movie, and I actually enjoyed this one a lot. It showed some fun little scenes of the two of them playing together, uh, and it had some humor. It was enjoyable. Uh, with this montage comes like the first ethical dilemma of Megan uh in all of their bonding and all of uh Megan essentially serving as a parent to Katie Gemma's co-workers bring up the fact that they are designing a toy to assist parents not to replace them uh and so they question how much of a parent Gemma is being to Katie uh and whether or not the technology is being misused which is once more, a central theme of the whole movie. And this conversation, I think, does a good job of sorting set up, sort of setting up the ominous tone that this movie has. You can sort of feel it crawling its way towards the big climactic ending that it has. Megan's very ominous throughout the movie, and this is a good way for the movie to be like, here is why this would be bad, even if this weren't a horror movie, which I thought was pretty unique. So Katie connects with Gemma very quickly, and it appears to be going very well. So Gemma decides to present Megan to her boss, David. So they set up in a screening room and Katie comes in and Megan is uniquely linked with Katie. Megan can only really serve Katie. So Katie comes in, she's on the other side of this one-way mirror. And the idea for this presentation is to show Megan's ability to just be a fun toy. Megan gives a line about how she has this arts and crafts project that they're going to work on. But Katie is very upset. She starts crying and Megan comes over to comfort her. And at first I thought, this is a, a decent scene. Um, this child actress is doing a good job for the most part. She 
seems to be giving genuine emotion, and it's cool that this robot doll is actually connecting with her. But then we get one of the most absurd things I've seen in a movie in a while. <laughs> to comfort Katie, Megan just starts singing like Disney princess style <laughs> in a way that is tonally completely different from anything that has happened in the movie. And I almost fell out of my chair. It was so funny. It catches you really off guard because there's no setup for it. And it's one of what? Two or three times? I think three times three that times. she said It happens throughout the movie. And each time, like, it never gets less concerning. Uh, I believe also in this montage, is this not also the same screening where she just knocks over watercolor paints? Oh. And then it's a fucking masterpiece well, out of nowhere? I was, I was going to mention an earlier part where we are first introducing Megan to the tech team. And Megan and Katie are together. And Megan's like, let me draw you a picture and like a, a three-year-old she five finger grips one yellow pen pencil and just rubs it around a piece of paper and then water gets knocked over on it and it develops into like one of those tiktok ai filter drawings that's like hyper realistic it's, it's so absurd and hilarious it's a portrait of katie that's like perfect spot on and everybody's in awe and it was extra funny because she she draws this blank photo and then holds it up and everyone in the viewing area is like oh <laughs> she's no good at this this is a broken toy and then she quote accidentally spills some water on the painting and everyone's like oh no she's broken and then she lifts it and it's just this absurd drawing the david character is like oh my god we gotta send this up the chain. <laughs> it's this, really this, good. This really clicks in David's head, and he becomes very attached to the idea of selling Megan's. He seems pretty convinced that this is going to be the next big thing, and so that is sort of his character for the rest of the movie. He's just very committed to how fast can we get Megan to market. So after this scene... We get a lot more of Megan and Katie bonding. It's clear that they're becoming very close, specifically Katie to Megan. And the result of that is her becoming very, very attached. We get a scene with the therapist character again, observing Katie and Gemma and how they interact. And she proposes this, this idea to Gemma of attachment theory. This is, of course, a, a well-known psychological theory, but she proposes it as when a child loses a parent, they're very likely to become hyperfixated on the next caregiver that takes care of them. And the therapist has concerns that she's attaching not to Gemma, the legal guardian that she should be, but to this robot doll. So after this scene, the movie starts to take its dark turn. There's a fun little scene where Katie is playing in the backyard, shooting these little rubber arrows, and Megan is just ominously watching from inside the house and Katie loses an arrow we learn it ended up right on the other side of that little hole in the fence Chekhov's gun part two Chekhov's gun part two so Megan goes to grab this arrow that we can see just delicately placed on the other side of this fence and Megan reaches to grab it and the dog returns and attacks Megan so Katie runs out of the house trying to fight off this dog and then Katie gets bit and it's this big exciting moment that I personally felt was a little bit goofy. I don't know how you guys felt about it. Uh, immediately after getting bit, uh, Megan 
alerts Gemma that like Katie's temperature is rising, which also means that Megan is like a medical, like shows on the screen that Megan can read Katie's temperature and like her vitals, which also poses the fact that Megan is like a piece of medical technology, which is not developed at all and would also be very important. Uh, it's an odd scene, but I mean, I do think for, for what the movie is trying to say about Megan in that she's the most advanced technology wrapped into a doll. She's a caretaker. She's a friend. She's a toy. All of these things wrapped into one. I didn't have a huge issue with that. My problems around this scene were mostly regarding this dog that we knew the second we saw the arrow on the other side of the fence was about to attack them. It was very on the nose, very expected. I didn't think it was particularly creative. The medically capable robot that, mind you, was developed in two days after its head just exploded. Um, Also, me personally, I would have never let a dog attack me like that. I would have actually just avoided it altogether. I mean, it was pretty stupid of that kid to get bit in the first place. I think that was a really big plot hole that a child got bit by a dog because it's just, you know, it's it's pretty absurd that she didn't just, you know, take care of that situation. Did an alpha move, jump away from the dog, something along those lines, maced it, anything like that. I was looking for something like that to happen. It's We're- worth noting that the dog also was not an American pit bull, meaning that this movie is factually incorrect. Uh, if something is going to eat a child, it's going to be a pit bull. And this podcast would like it to be known we're staunchly anti-pit bull. I would not like to make the... Okay, the jokes are done now. The jokes are done. I, I think pit bulls are a really good breed of dog. It's all about how you take care of them. Pit bulls are great. They're a product of their environment. What would the Lasso of the Moon podcast be if it weren't for you two just completely derailing the conversation? <laughs> so, of course, you know where it's going at this point. Megan kills the neighbor's dog. She returns in the night, and d- does it show how she kills the dog? No, and I was going to talk about that, because they needed to at least allude to exactly how the dog was killed. The way that, like, I'm not saying actually, like, show a dog dying on screen. You, you shouldn't, like, viscerally do that, especially in a PG-13 movie. But the way that it's implied that the dog dies is that we get it, we see it being ambiguously sucked through the hole in the fence and then that's it it's not like megan set a trap up for the dog and it walked into it we have no idea what happened to the dog even for the rest of the movie we don't really know what happened it's a little silly uh is this rated pg-13 it is is. i do have an issue i it's one of the stronger notes i have for this movie in being rated pg-13 uh megan doesn't let itself like live up to its full potential i think if this movie took on the the full R rating and really like leaned into the the dark comedy horror genre um, instead of like maximizing audiences by making it available to younger audiences. It could have been a better movie. It's lacking in its elements of horror. It's not scary. Correct. Uh, Bryce mentioned that you see the dog jump scare coming from a mile away. And there's maybe one or two points throughout the entire movie where I was actually like caught off guard and like, oh, that got me. So I think in being a PG-13 movie, uh, they limited themselves. This could have been more than it was. And that was not super surprising. Blumhouse is very well known for making everything PG-13 because PG-13 movies gross the most. They are open to the most audiences. So I didn't think this movie was that gross at all. <laughs> Thank you <laughs> for that horrendous pun. 
So there's actually a lot of time here that passes, and I struggled to remember the bits and pieces that are kind of interspersed between Megan's next few kills, but the the neighbor is, of course, very upset because, again, she's a sweet old lady. Her dog is now missing, and she's showing up with police, trying to figure out where her dog is. She's blaming Gemma because, again, Gemma threatened to murder her dog, and now it's missing. And Megan seems to perceive this as a threat, so... She lures the neighbor using her advanced voice technology. She imitates the whimpering dog in a shed and lures in the neighbor. And then in what I think was one of the more fun kills in the movie, she slams the neighbor up against a wall, uses a staple gun from halfway across the garage. Correction, it was a nail gun. A nail gun from halfway across the garage nails this old woman's hand to the wall, and then uses some spray chemicals, again Chekhov's gun, to just spray her in the face. I'm not entirely sure how that results in you killing her, but the scene ends and she's dead now. Also, like, blood appears to come out at the end, which once more is like, is this acid? Is what is going on? It's not clear, but it's interesting. It's fun to watch. It was entertaining. Yeah. So... After that, we get to what was my personal favorite scene in the movie. Gemma earlier on had established she's going to try to send Katie to school because she needs to work. She's not able to homeschool her like Katie's parents had in the past. And she suggests the idea of this alternative school that apparently meets outdoors and it's for more creative type children. So she drives to this school, which is literally just in the woods, and... Worth noting, Megan's wearing an awesome coat in this scene. I would rock that coat personally. Yeah, it's pretty tight. Megan's fit was crazy. Megan's fit was crazy throughout most of this movie. Katie does not want to part with Megan, so the teacher allows Megan to sit on the toy table with all of the other dolls that the kids can't part with in my favorite shot of the film, which is this hilarious and disturbing shot of all of these fun little stuffed toys and then this hyper-realistic doll sitting in the (laughs) center of it and it slow zooms in on this shot and it's very unnerving and I thought it was pretty good. Leading up to this scene, there are about 20 different pieces of dialogue where Gemma's like, you can't take Megan. And Katie's like, I want to take Megan. (laughs) And it was really, really annoying. You can't take Megan. And then she's like, I want to take Megan. It happens 20 times over, and um, A, it was <laughs> so overwhelming. B, I don't think it's entirely inaccurate and reminded me how much I don't really want to have kids. I do think it is worth noting there are some really funny jokes in the lead-up to the, the wood scene. Specifically, I think my favorite joke in the movie is when the teacher shows up at the car and is like, are these your daughters? <laughs> and then she's like, no, actually, this is a toy. And then Megan turns her head and looks at the teacher, and the teacher's like, holy shit! Uh, followed up by, uh, do you guys remember the joke that sets up the, the boy that Megan would go on to kill? What He says to his mom. Yes, of course. Mom. So Gemma is talking to one of the other mothers that's just hanging out at the school for some reason, observing the kids. And she's like, that's my boy over there. And this kid's like 12 feet tall and has a low (laughs) voice. And she's like, I know he hit a big growth spurt, but he's actually a sweetheart. Aren't you, honey? And then he turns around and 
uses, I believe, the only F word in the movie because PG-13 movies are allotted one F word. It's used well in The Simpsons. Very well. And he turns and says, fuck off, mom. Uh, That was a big highlight for me. But this boy that's clearly an asshole ends up being a pretty important character for this scene. Katie is paired with this kid and they're supposed to walk out into the woods to find some chestnuts. This kid finds a chestnut which is spiky. I didn't know that. I don't know my chestnut lore. Um, it's actually the shell of the chestnut that's spiky. The chestnut is inside the little the little chestnut sack. Chestnut sack. Is that the, <laughs> it's the, the biological term? It, it's the technical term. So he, he shoves this spiky little chestnut sack into Katie's hand. She goes, ouchie, ow, ow, and drops it. And Megan, hearing her her owner, I guess, for lack of a better term, shows up. In this fun little creepy scene, she's just standing in the background and proceeds to beat the shit out of this child uh, in a very brutal way. She grabs him by both ears and then just stretches until his (laughs) ears get ripped off. The elasticity of the lobe is tested in this scene. And boy, are they elastic. I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that in real life my earlobes are that elastic. I'm currently testing... On Brett. Yep. I think... They're holding firm. I think they're a little bit more firm than that. But it worked for a fun little visual trick. And the scene ends with her, Megan, pushing this boy down a bank where he swiftly rolls into the road and is hit by a car. Uh, Also, that aforementioned, uh, like, practical work uh, shows its face here. Uh, Megan chases him down in this, like, spider crawl that the actress uh, figured out she could do one day on her living room floor and then sent a video to the the director and thought, this might be a fun ad. And I thought it made for one of the genuinely spookier moments of the movie just because it seemed so unnatural, but it came across really well. Yeah, before the the boy eats a bumper, he gets chased through the woods and uh, uh, there's a, a longing shot of her watching him run away. And I remember every once in a while when I'm in a movie, I think about, you know, oh man, it would be great if this happened. And in that moment, I thought, oh my God, it would be so, so funny if she just got down on all fours right now and started chasing after him. And then it happened. And then when it happened, I actually rolled into the adjacent seats to my left because... I almost started scream laughing. It was so funny. And God, I, I should have directed this movie. They really lost out. I believe I I even applauded at this moment. And the rest, of the, audience, the rest of the audience seemed to get a kick out of it too. So we get back at home and Gemma is consoling Katie, telling her it's not her fault. And this is sort of where the movie takes another twist, not in terms of plot, but in terms of now characters are starting to become suspicious of Megan. So Gemma is now suspicious of this doll and she confronts her in the scene again when she's working in her garage and Megan just shows up. And this this scene in particular does set up something important that will come up later. In reality, I actually don't think it's that important, but for the last scene of the movie it is. She has this home, this tech home device that she can use to turn on the lights and stuff and this tech device asks her how are you doing Gemma and that's a little bit disturbing but then Megan shows up and you move on so she has this conversation with Megan and asks her 
what the heck's been going on? Did you kill these people that keep showing up dying? And Megan, of course, does not tell her explicitly, but she's very vague in the way that apparently, according to Gemma's co-workers, an AI would be. And she sort of hints at it, but it's enough that Gemma decides she thinks she's done with Megan. Uh, from there, Gemma goes to check like the files within Megan's stored memory bank, and they're gone. Uh, it's showcasing that Megan is becoming a little bit more of her own like sentient being and not at the will of everyone else uh, as the movie progresses. So Gemma wraps up Megan in some duct tape and some bubble wrap and brings her back to the office and Katie comes with her and she's clearly very distraught by the fact that she no longer has Megan to talk to anymore. She's arguing with the therapist in the background of this scene and Gemma comes in to console her and Katie in an uncharacteristic move actually slaps Gemma. Uh, one of the audience members in front of us went, <gasps> There's an older gentleman who went, Oh! And I thought that was pretty funny. It was it was far funnier than the scene itself, but I'm glad that we were there to witness it. God, I will never stop advocating for being in the movies for these kinds of moments. It's just, there's nothing like it. You're not getting that enjoyment out of sitting on your couch watching the movie. People need to make more noises during like live screenings of movies. I think that's always the thing that I'll take away from it. No matter how good a movie is, if an elderly person interjects in the movie, it's bound to be my favorite part of it. Always good. Always good. So this leads to what, in my opinion, was the most effective dramatic scene in the movie, where Gemma attempts to empathize with Katie. She expresses how, hey, I lost somebody that I care about too. This isn't easy for any of us. I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm doing my best. But your attachment to Megan is a little bit problematic. And she does a good job of explaining this in a way that a child might actually understand. She exp expresses that Katie is likely using Megan as a way of just distracting from these painful feelings that she's experiencing. And this scene ends with Gemma promising to be the parent that she promised the government and she promised Katie that she would be. Uh, this was, in my opinion, Allison Williams' real highlight. Uh, I, I liked her a lot in this scene specifically. The rest of the movie, she wasn't really asked to do a whole lot. So there wasn't really anything that I didn't like about her performance. But this moment in particular, I thought was a real standout for her. It's the like lone instance in the movie that she acknowledges that she too is affected by this like mass family tragedy. Yes. Uh, which I think is interesting, being that it's a mass family tragedy. But uh, in her one ask of emotion, she does a good job. Yeah, it's actually a pretty big plot hole to me. Because they do make it purposely vague what Gemma's relationship is with her late sister mm -hmm. but what's not really vague is that she doesn't really seem to care that much if at all but then she's also like i'll take care of this kid who she also doesn't really take care of you know she doesn't really care about that much and then the social worker is like hey you could you could just take this kid upstate with her uh her grandparents like they actually said they take her already and then Gemma's like, no, no, you can't, you can't take her away. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah, and I think my my thoughts that this would make for a good drama, maybe we're not me wishing that this were a drama, it just is me wishing that this movie had done a lot more with the emotional side of things. I felt like ultimately that was the movie's biggest failure. It 
didn't really do much of anything, at least to me personally, to connect with me in any way. All of the enjoyment that I got out of this movie was just, eh, it was pretty funny. It was creative at times, like like both Wyatt and Brett expressed. There's not really anything to take home here, and I think that this one good scene, even though it is good on its own, it almost highlights how little of this is in the rest of the movie. There's so much more that you could unpack here in terms of trauma, and a lot of the best horror movies, in my opinion, I'm looking at posters on my wall of Midsummer and Hereditary, both of which use grief and loss very effectively, these genuinely horrifying things that could actually happen to you, they use those themes to make their horror movie premises even more horrifying. And I don't think I would ever expect that from a Blumhouse movie, but in the search for a great movie, which I, I personally always am in the search of that, this movie really lacks that. So Gemma discusses some more ethics with her co-workers, not super interesting conversation in my opinion. The script is not really interesting enough to hold a lot of weight in these less intense scenes. But she ultimately here decides, we're done with Megan. She's progressing too rapidly. She's becoming too independent. And she's giving off some really sus vibes. <laughs> to put it eloquently. <laughs> to put it eloquently. So Gemma attempts, as well as her co-workers, attempt to convince their boss, David, that... Hey, we shouldn't continue with this. It's not right. We're not quite there yet in terms of this technology and the ethics of it. But, of course, David is far too committed to making the racks that Megan would bring to this company. So this leads us to the climax of the movie. David, of course, decides to launch the worldwide ad campaign for Megan. We get another sort of real-life moment where we see a fictionalized newscast of news people talking about this big technology that will drastically change the toy industry. This was pretty entertaining. So we see David as he does his best in his executive overlord self to get a bunch of people into their corporate headquarters to unveil Megan. Uh, and then as this is going on, Tess and Cole, who are now alone with Megan in the lab, attempt to shut her off. This was another scene that I really liked. Uh, I guess probably just because something was actually happening. So Cole walks up behind Megan to unplug her and she hops off this rack that she's strung up on and wraps her own cords around David's head and then pulls him up and he is now hanging from Megan's own cord. It's, it's all very, very wild, and I thought it was pretty entertaining. This kicks off a lot of Megan badassery. Yes. Which, if you're going to make a, a movie that isn't too serious, uh, and you're just going for the entertaining factor, I wish they would have gotten to this a little sooner and leaned into it more, because it's yes. really so good. It was very, very entertaining to watch her, uh, you know, kill her makers, or at least attempt to. We've missed something very important in the timeline. Oh, please, please. And we interject. need to cycle back. If you were ever missing covers of Bulletproof by David Guetta featuring Sia in the movie, uh, or just in movies in general, boy, do I have the worst cover and just the most like skin crawling edition of it in another singing scene in this movie. And it's worth pointing out, it was my favorite part of the entire film, just for the fact that not a single person remained in their seats as everyone just kind of shriveled up in a ball uh, in an act to hopefully get small enough 
to completely cease to exist so they didn't have to continue watching it. Uh, funny enough, this was actually the second movie in the last few months that I've seen that used bulletproof to horrible effect. <laughs> I don't think either of you watched Swimmers with me. It was a Netflix movie. Oh, um, I watched it. I know exactly what yeah, you mean. But it's a pretty serious movie in terms of the tone. And there's just an absurd dance sequence near the beginning of the movie where they're dancing to bulletproof. And I'm sure, listener, you understand this is not a niche song by any stretch of the imagination. It When you hear it in a movie, like in Megan, it just completely takes you out of the scene. All you can think about is this pop song. And it's just goofy. Yeah, it's definitely a meme song at this point. Yes. Um, there have been a weird number of similar situations in film that we've seen recently now that i think about it between weird singing scenes three times in this movie the scene that bryce referenced in the swimmers and for any real movie head uh members of our audience who saw they them there is a fantastic oh my goodness musical breakout <laughs> <laughs> of of a pink song that yes. I, I just can't even begin to explain how funny it is. You should really see it for yourself. It, it's completely ridiculous. Yeah, if there's no reason to ever watch They Slash Them on Peacock other than to find this singing scene <laughs> in the middle of the movie, maybe watch three or four minutes before that just so that you get an idea of the tone that this movie's trying to set up and then just just be blown away. Uh, worth noting, I think, that that was my first use of Blown on this podcast. Hey. Um, just be blown away by how absurd this scene is. So, back to Megan. This is, of course, the climax of the movie. Not a whole lot happens plot-wise, but Megan attacks David, the boss. She kills him by chasing him down a hall and then using a... What are those things called? The the paper shredders? Yeah, they're not shredders. It's what you put on a, a flat surface and cut it with like a what looks like a long butcher knife that is pretty much as, as dull as like the edge of a dollar bill, which is so funny that she kills this man with it. So he's running down the hall and she stabs him in the back and he falls into the elevator with his assistant. It also doesn't have like a sharp edge on the end and he, she she throws him like it's a samurai sword it's so good so she she kills david and he falls into the lap of his executive assistant essentially and for some reason rather than just killing the executive assistant megan decides i'm going to frame him for murder i i don't really understand why megan feels the need to do this she has no qualms with just killing people and running away in the past I think this is part of like an unfleshed out storyline. Yes. Because there's a scene earlier in the movie where the executive assistant like steals all the files to Megan. Uh, like all the computer files, he moves them from the company laptop over to his own. He takes like the research database. Yeah. And then it's never expanded on. And then Megan's like, haha, you have sensitive company information, murder, suicide. And that's like the whole basis of that storyline so i feel like there was something more there that probably just didn't make the final cut again that could be a whole nother movie like this character that's being mistreated by his corporate boss and so he leaks these very classified documents in order to get back or maybe get a new job somewhere else none of that is explored in this movie it's just kind of ham-fisted in there and so 102 minute runtime um, you can't fit too, too much in 
But, uh, you know, uh, like a Blumhouse movie is not going to be that long overall. There's a lot of potential here that it's like, damn, I, I wish I, I wish that somebody else ran with this IP and did more of that stuff with it while still making it like as funny and entertaining. This is sort of stepping on like our, our takeaways at the end of the, the plot summary, but I, I think you're absolutely right. This movie either needed more dramatic elements, more fleshed out, well-written dramatic elements, or it almost would have benefited from just completely eliminating those from the script, or at least the majority of them, and just leaning really heavily on the goofy character of Megan and the fun ways that she kills people. That's where I think a lot of the enjoyment from this movie comes from. So there's not a whole lot to get out of what the movie is giving you here. Sorry, I had to stop what I was doing. You guys didn't see it, but it was B-Real time, so... The B-Real has gone off. Had to go in. Sorry about that. So there's a lot here that happens near the end of the movie that I don't even feel is worth spending too much time on. So Megan kills those two. She steals David's whip, and this is like a nice sports car, and she just knows how to drive it because she's tuned into the cloud, I guess. She shows up back at Gemma's house where she took Katie, and Gemma's there, vibing in the dark. All of a sudden, the piano starts getting played, because apparently Megan knows how to play piano. And To be fair, she's pretty smart. She's pretty <laughs> smart. Uh, it was ominous, a little bit silly. I didn't hate it. Uh, what song was she playing? I was just about to say, what song was I that? wanted to know what it was. It It is, I couldn't tell exactly what it was, or I could hear the, the melody and know that it was recognizable. It's also kind of another meme song. Like, it was funny that she was playing it on piano in a serious moment of the movie. If you guys keep talking, I will find this. We're just going to move on. For our listeners, you just missed a nearly 10-minute conversation of us trying to figure out what song Megan is playing and ultimately we couldn't figure it out. Uh, we argued about whether or not it was the lost theme and as I'm saying this why it appears to have had a eureka moment. It's Toy Soldiers which Eminem samples in a song in the Marshall Mathers the Eminem show record and it's the sample part of that. I believe it's a song about his beef with someone else in 50 Cent. And I was just like, oh, this is an Eminem track, which I thought was an interesting inclusion. But it's a sample from a song prior. What would we do without the leading authority on Marshall Mathers on the Last of the Moon podcast? We'd be completely lost. I did go through an Eminem phase in eighth grade, and it's stuck with me since. So, you know, it served me well in this moment and this moment alone. I'm glad we figured that out. So this kicks off a very intense... And that's air quotes on very intense fight scene between Megan and Gemma. The two go back and forth. It's not even really back and forth because Megan is incredibly strong and she's kind of just beating the crap out of Gemma. And Katie comes in. There's this, what I thought was a pretty entertaining dialogue where uh, Megan imitates Gemma's voice and tries to get Katie to go back to her room. But the two go back and forth. Gemma tries to shut off Megan, and it's not really effective. She gets beat up. Uh, they end up fighting all the way to Gemma's garage, and Megan is just beating the crap out of Katie. Megan is just beating the crap out of Gemma. That's her name. Uh, Megan also makes a point at one, uh, one point in this fight sequence in which she alludes that she's going to become a permanent caretaker by, like, 
crippling Gemma with a pen. With a pen, yes. Yeah, which I don't know if that was like a like a lobotomy joke or like what the deal was there, or if it. Either way, it came across very odd. There's like a, a reoccurring thing throughout the the movie where Gemma uses a pen to distract Megan before she shuts her off. But the illusion of like. Oh, well, I I would like to comment on this before you go further. This might be off base, but what I gathered from this is that the pen is some kind of device that you can you can flash into the robot's eyes. And then Megan was like, what this would do to a human brain is essentially lobotomize you. And I was like, oh, that's men in black. (laughs) No, because she she mentions like a particular artery or organ that because she has the entire Internet to pull from she's got she implied she's going to stab it into her and turn her basically into a paraplegic uh, i yeah. see I, I assume i missed that. i think it was just like a, a normal tablet pen and she was just using it as like a here look at this and then because she's programmed to do what she's told she would look at it and then not notice her being turned off makes sense i actually i take everything back that i said this you're a fool a, well the movie itself 10 out of 10 it's actually a perfect cinematic masterpiece so they're fighting. Gemma's getting the crap beaten out of her by Megan. Gets uh, kneecapped with a hammer. Gets kneecapped with a hammer. It's pretty crazy. But then fortunately, Katie shows up to save the day. And she's got somehow, I don't know when she put them on, but she's got the gloves to control Bruce in her hands, or on her hands rather. And the tides turn for this battle. Katie tears Megan to shred. She literally tears her in half. And the movie does a very classic horror movie trope here where they make it look like the bad guy died, but then he's not actually dead. Um, I do think it's worth noting before Katie attacks Megan with with Bruce, did I even mention that she uses Bruce to tear her apart? I think you I think might have been did. getting there. She's got the gloves on. They're controlling Bruce. It's a Pacific Rim fight, and it looks really good. And, of course, this nine-year-old with no prior instruction knows how to use this, like, super advanced technology, and it just comes uh, about real easy. But, I mean, we saw Bruce earlier in the movie. You knew he was coming back. (laughs) You knew he was coming back, and Katie liked him. So I guess there's a connection there, and she just knows how to use him. It was a good callback. It was fun. It was fun. My my main issue with this scene is, so when Katie first shows up, it shows Megan reading her emotions, and you watch in real time as Katie shifts sort of from wariness and fear to starting to trust Megan, as Megan is sort of imploring her to switch over to the dark side and trust Megan because they're best friends. Megan's been the real one taking care of her. And unless I missed something... I think I think I know what you missed. So on the, on the heads-up display that we're seeing from Megan, you see that it's starting to analyze that Katie's face is showing trusting. Um, and I also thought that it was implying that you're, she's trusting Megan. And I think that the audience is supposed to think that what she's actually seeing mm. is trusting... She's trusting Gemma, her aunt. That, you know, okay, hey, actually, maybe maybe this Megan thing isn't very mm, good That's for a me. very good point. Very good point. Yeah, okay. So my issue with that scene has been revoked. Thank you, Brett's beautiful, beautiful brain. It's pretty good. So, of course, Megan's top half is alive. The classic not-actually-dead trope. Her top half crawls around, and now she's trying to kill Katie. And, of course, that's the nail in the coffin. Katie 
no longer has any ties to, to Megan. And I also think it's worth noting Megan's appearance here is very distorted because in their fight, Gemma took a chainsaw to Megan's head and it gave her a big gash in the face and also ripped out a lot of her hair. So I actually do think that that's important, not just to make her a little bit scarier for the audience, but also when Katie comes in, she has not actually seen Megan at any point until this moment. She walks in and not only sees the inner horror of what Megan is doing, she realizes she's actually bad, but now she also has this very scary physical appearance that I actually think is important to Katie's change in loyalty. So they're fighting the top half of Megan and Gemma grabs Bruce's head and just starts bashing Megan's skull with Bruce's head. It's a fun little duality there. Uh, her old robot is now being used to beat the shit out of this brand new, far more advanced robot. Nog on nog. Nog baby. on nog violence. So Gemma is getting choked by Megan as she's beating her up with Bruce's head, and she exposes the microchip that I think is the most important Chekhov's gun. The first time we meet Bruce, Gemma points out this little chip here in his head is where all of his power is. That's where all of his memories go. That's where all of who he is is. And so Katie sees this. It's now been exposed in Megan because of Bruce's big head. Katie grabs a screwdriver, stabs it into Megan's head, and the movie at this point is essentially over. Megan is dead, or so you think, because classic horror trope number two comes out here. Police arrive. We get a lingering shot inside Gemma's home, and the smart home turns on, on its own. Sort of implying... Sequel for more money. Sequel for more money. Which I immediately thought, uh, being that the way that Megan is spelled in this title is like essentially Mothrigan. Mothrigan! <laughs> what are they going to call the third movie? Mothrigan. You, can't, you can't call it Mothrigan again. Matugan? Matugan. <laughs> Mothrigan 2. The squeakle. My theory, if <laughs> this actually gets a sequel, the smart house... Damn, okay. <laughs> I, I didn't think we were going to laugh about it for that long. <laughs> I'm glad you liked my, my Alvin and the Chipmunks joke. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so tired. Um, listener, you can't see why because we don't have cameras yet. But this boy has tears coming out of his eyes you over an Alvin and the Chipmunks joke. You, you won't see me in the future. I will refuse to be perceived. So yeah, that brings us to the end of Megan. I personally, <laughs> Wyatt is still losing it over the squeakle joke. So I'm just gonna keep going. Uh, I personally had a good time. We talked a lot about what this movie didn't do well. Maybe because the things that it did do well were pretty basic. But, yeah, I, I thought that this was a fun time. <laughs> God damn it. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. We're going to put Wyatt to bed very soon. Oh. And he, he's going to get a good night's sleep. I'm locking back in. We're, we're back. We're back. Bad movie for the movie lover in me. Great movie for the guy who likes to point at things and laugh. And those are my two different personalities. So, you know, we hit one out of the two. It wasn't bad.
It was a silly and goofy movie. It served its purpose. It's a use of time. I used my time. Uh, would I consider it a good movie? No. Uh, would I watch it again? Probably not. Is there certain people who would enjoy this more than myself? Yes. Um, my takeaways from Megan? A lot of doll movies. I like that this one was slightly different from the rest and a little bit less scary for a frail man such as myself. Uh, it's really confusing me right now because he's been so scared of so many movies that have come out recently. That are not scary. That but are not even wait. scary. He is obsessed with Skinamarink. Skinamarink, which I hope will be our next episode of this podcast. It won't. <laughs> looks like the scariest movie of all time, and I'm obsessed with it. So please. I don't think that movie is going to be easy to see, which will be the, the only hindrance to us making a podcast about it. But yeah. We hope you enjoyed this movie, too. If you have thoughts on it, feel free to share them on our socials. We'll be making a Instagram post along with the release of this episode. Feel free to drop some comments about what you thought about Megan. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at LassoTheMoonPod. Tag your mom, tag your dad, tag your cousins, uh, anybody who likes movies. Hopefully you'll like us. Yeah, so thank you very much for listening all the way up to this point. Uh, we... Greatly appreciate it. If you can, like they said, do us a huge favor and share this podcast with someone you think would like it and give us a rate on whatever streaming platform you're using. It takes no time at all. Just drop five stars there. That helps a lot. But yeah, that concludes episode two of the Last of the Moon podcast. I love you. I would last of the moon for you. I hope you would do the same for us. Uh, yeah, I love you. I love you. Love. Say it, Wyatt. I love you. We love you. Good night. Good night. Good night.